Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to finish up chapter 21 today and then do most of chapter 22, but we'll stop just a little shy of the whole chapter. So, picking up the pace a little bit this week. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for blessing our service already with Your presence. During that sweet time of worship, God, I know that You are moving mightily in this room, that You inhabit the praises of Your people, and that You are receiving glory and praise and honor, and at the same time meeting us where we are at and ministering to our hearts. And we thank You for that, Father. I pray that even now this would be a continuation of worship as we humble ourselves before Your Word and we have come to to learn more about You, to hear from heaven, and we have come with the intention of obeying Your Word and serving You. So I pray that even here now, God, that You would open Your Word before us by Your Spirit and that You would minister to the hearts and the minds in this room. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen, Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's someone who has become very familiar to us by now. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you've heard that name. And we know that he was once Saul of Tarsus, and he was a a Pharisee and zealous for the law of God. And he was opposing Christ and the church. And one day, Christ intervened in his life and struck him down blind to the ground. And he surrendered. He bowed the knee to Christ and to his, his will, his plan for his life, and God sent a guy named Ananias to Saul at that time to give him back his sight. Now, Ananias was scared to do so because Saul of Tarsus had quite the reputation. But he went in obedience, and God said this in Acts 9.15. He said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So that was Paul's calling that he was to be a chosen vessel for God and he was to bear God's name before the Gentiles, before kings, before Israel. And that was what he did. And that's what we see really playing out in our text today. Paul is walking in that. And this is going to be one of the the greatest opportunities of all of the Apostle Paul's ministry to witness to the Jews there in Jerusalem. And this idea of being a chosen vessel, I don't think this ever left Paul. I think that he was impacted deeply by this idea of being a vessel. And I'm going to talk about that more in a second. But there's a, another verse in 2 Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul wrote that we have before he died. And this is some of the last words that he had to share with Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. And he said this, chapter 2, verse 20, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. So just as Paul was a chosen vessel of God to be used for His glory and His honor, Paul is going to tell Timothy and all of us that we too are chosen vessels of God, sanctified and cleansed for the glory and honor and the purposes of God. Now let me just say this, we don't often use the word vessel, I don't think, I don't. 
I don't usually ask my wife to refill my water vessel for me or, or anything like that. So it's very much kind of a Bible word. And it's something that we as Christians will often use, even in our prayers, we'll say, Lord, just may I be a vessel for you. Will you fill me, Lord? Those, those kinds of things. And the word is, is kind of a generic word. It, it means a, an instrument or a tool or a piece of furniture. But here in these verses that where Paul writes to Timothy, it's speaking of this great house with different types of vessels. And it says that there are vessels of honor and there are vessels of dishonor. And the best way I know to, to bring this into modern day is I lived on a ranch once and we had pigs there and we would feed them. So we, we had a bucket where we would collect all the food that was left over and it was slop, pig slop. It was disgusting. And that bucket was set apart for that purpose. It was a vessel of dishonor. I would not take that bucket, fill it up with water, and bring it into my family or my guests and say, drink up, guys. I wouldn't do that, okay? And so for them, I would give them the, the fine china or the best that I have because I want to honor them. That would be a vessel of honor versus a, a vessel of dishonor. And Paul picks that idea up and says, that's what we were. We were a... a pig slop bucket but we've been cleansed we've been purified we've been sanctified and now we are fine china fit for the the master's use for the master's purpose it's such a glorious thing sanctified and prepared for every good work and then paul says in ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 that we've been saved by grace through faith, it's not of ourselves, lest we should boast, but it is a gift of God. Then it goes on to say, and we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works that have been prepared beforehand for us. And I remember the first time that I heard that and thought, wow, you know, the Lord has a plan. God has a purpose and He can use me. He can use my life. I can be cleansed, I can be sanctified, I can be redeemed, and God can use me. God has something for me to walk in. That was such a spectacular idea for me. You know, I, I knew that I had messed up in my life. I made a lot of bad decisions, hurt a lot of people, burned a lot of bridges. And I knew that I couldn't take those things back. But I knew that I could move forward in Christ and I could serve the Lord and I could use the rest of my life building and healing and being used by God for His purposes and I could be a vessel of honor. And so this is a very special message for me. It has always been with me from the beginning of my walk. I trust it will be a very special message for us all. And that was Paul. He was a, a chosen vessel of God. And we're going to see that playing out in our text today. So he's making his way into Jerusalem. He is there. He met with with the, the elders and James last week. Remember they warned him, you got a bad reputation, so we want you to do this particular plan that was devised by James and the elders so that the, the Jews there in Jerusalem would realize that, you know, Paul's not as bad as we thought. He's still okay with the customs and the, the rituals, and that was the, the hope anyway. So now we pick up verse 27. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brings, uh, brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So here Paul is in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's spotted by some Jews from Asia. Now that's to be expected. Uh, This is the Feast of Pentecost. It's a very special feast. You have the Passover, which is a seven-day feast. There's actually three different feasts that happen within those seven days. And then on the end of that seven days, 50 days later, there's another feast called Pentecost. And so Jerusalem would be swelling, bursting at the seams at this point from Jews from all over. And so Paul was just in Ephesus not long ago, and there was the riot. Remember, that broke out, so Paul left from there, and he went from place to place to place, and now he's in Jerusalem. Well, lo and behold, we most likely have Jews from Ephesus here in Jerusalem because they spot Trophimus, Trophimus the Ephesian, and they're like, wait a second. They know what's going on. They see Paul, and they they flip out, and they start to cry out, men of Israel, help, this is the guy that has been teaching against our customs to everyone everywhere. And then they accused him of bringing a a Greek, a Gentile, into the temple, uh, past the court of the Gentiles. And so there were various courts in the temple. There was an outer area where everyone was permitted to go, and the Gentiles uh, particularly, but then from there there was the court of the women. And every court that they went into it became more and more restricted until you got to the very center where only the high priest could go one time a year and so that was the way that the temple precinct was set up so there was a place where the the gentiles were allowed but they could not go beyond that point at the risk of death if you notice in your notes here david guzik he says it was absolutely prohibited for gentiles to go beyond the designated court of the gentiles in the temple grounds uh, signs were posted which read in both Greek and Latin, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. The Romans were so sensitive to this that they authorized the Jews to execute anyone that offended in this way, even if the offender was a Roman citizen. I thought that was kind of extreme. I thought, is that really true? And so I started to dig around, look at different commentaries and check out articles online, and yeah, it is true. And so they didn't play around. They were dead serious. If Gentiles came past that court, they could be executed on the spot. And Paul knew this. He's not about to bring Trophimus in there. So they rail this false accusation against him. This riot breaks forth there on the temple precinct. And then verse 30, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So as was prophesied, Paul did make his way to Jerusalem. He did experience tribulation and he was taken in a mob, beaten and bound. And there was so much confusion here, but, uh, you know, this was one of the greatest opportunities of Paul's ministry. But you know what? It came in a very difficult situation. And that's so true for us. As God would use us as chosen vessels, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Sometimes some of our most uh, impactful moments 
come at great adversity to us or at great inconvenience or God may call us to minister to someone that we really don't like or maybe we even hate. We really struggle with unforgiveness. Who knows? Uh, It may be a very hostile crowd. Um, But God does do that and it's not always easy. And that certainly was the case for Paul. Now they were trying to beat Paul to death. That, That was it. This guy, they... He, they accused him of bringing a Gentile in past the courts of the Gentiles, and they were ready to end it for Paul. So we're told that the, uh, the commander of the garrison saw this. So there was, um, well, I'll just read it here. It's in your notes. The Roman tribune was the commander of a cohort, also known as a garrison, here consisting of up to a thousand soldiers under the command of several centurions. And the Roman response could have come very quickly. Roman soldiers were quartered in the Herodian fortress known as the Tower of Antonia on the northwest corner of the temple wall. Its high tower provided a full view of the temple area and it had two flights of stairs that led down into the grounds so that the soldiers could run down to the crowd almost immediately. A lookout person on the tower would have observed the mob below. So this was a, a huge temple complex that Herod constructed for the Jews. And there was also a tower built there, the Fort of Antonia. And uh, the soldiers would be stationed there. They could have up to a thousand soldiers in that place. And during times of the feast especially, they would be on high alert because their main thing was to keep the peace. And you'll recall that was why uh, Pontius Pilate was so, uh, he was concerned. He was there in Jerusalem during the Passover when Jesus was there and that whole thing happened. He just wanted to keep the peace. And so he ultimately gave them over to their own plan and handed Jesus over to them for that very reason. And so uh, kind of the same thing here. And this riot breaks out. There's this tower right there outside of the, the temple grounds and the soldiers rush right down to Paul's defense. So verse 33 Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out, Away with him. When they say away with him, they mean kill him. Kill him. That's what's happening here. When the commander came in, he had Paul bound with two chains. So on the left and the right, he was uh, chained to two different soldiers. And there was so much confusion going on that they couldn't get a straight answer as to why this was happening. You know, this is so true. When God is using us, when, when God would use you as a chosen vessel... Sometimes people get angry at that. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever been trying to share the Lord with somebody or share your testimony or minister to someone and they just get hot? And you know, I'll tell you, sometimes they don't even know why they're so angry. Just like these people here, there was all kinds of different things going on and there was a great confusion happening. The soldiers couldn't figure out what was going on. And sometimes people, they're not rejecting you They aren't mad at you. They're really mad at God. They're rejecting God. And sometimes people might be very angry, but they're not necessarily angry at what you're saying or you in particular, but there's something much deeper going on. 
that they're equating what you're saying to them with. And so we have to realize that it's not an attack against us. When God would use us and use us in difficult situations, we can't take it personally. It's ultimately between them and God, and who knows what might be going on in their mind. But we want to be used of the Lord nonetheless and to step out in faith and and risk that, as Paul did. Well, they decided they were going to take Paul back to the fort, back to Fort Antonia. And the mob was so tumultuous that they actually had to pick Paul up and carry him. They didn't want Paul to get away. They were ready to kill this guy, and now they're seeing him swept safely away to the, to the barracks. And so they're coming after this guy to try to tear him apart, even with the soldiers. So they basically have to pick him up and carry him out. Well, Paul's getting ready to give his testimony now. We're going to see. He's going to ask the soldiers if they'll just stop and give him a chance to speak to the people. This is the first of five public defenses that Paul's going to give moving forward in the next couple of chapters here. So, verse 33... Excuse me, uh, verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, that is to say obscure And I implore uh, implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying... So notice, first off, he, he speaks very politely to the soldiers in all of this chaos. And he says, basically, may I please speak to the crowd? And I'm sure that they weren't expecting such a polite request. Um, I appreciate that about Paul. You know, you don't have to be offensive in your interactions with people. Uh, You just don't. I remember when I was a a new believer, I was working at a job site somewhere. This was out in Mennonite country. I don't know if you know what Mennonites are, but they're kind of like the Amish, but not quite as strict. And so we're out there working, and this guy pulls up on his four-wheeler, and then uh, almost immediately in the conversation, he says, Are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. And then he kind of slaps his hands on his legs and said, well, did you get those tattoos before or after you became a Christian? And I was like, you got to be kidding me right now. I'm like looking around, is this a joke or something? And he just proceeded to go on and be as offensive as you could believe. And I'm thinking, that's not really a, a smart approach to trying to win somebody to the Lord. And you just don't have to do that. And uh, that kind of comes from a smug, self-righteous attitude. And I talked about that last week. The, uh, the legalism, it's, it's all about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. And, and that guy was very much bound up in that. And it came through and the way that he communicated with me. Not good. So then they asked Paul, they said, can, can you speak Greek? You know, they, they didn't expect him to speak the language of the... Uh, the educated, as as it were, and then they say, "Aren't you the aren't you the Egyptian, who some time ago basically caused an uproar here and led all these assassins out into the wilderness?" So just a few years earlier, there was a false prophet, an Egyptian false prophet, who had convinced thousands of people that he was going to overthrow Rome there, 
And so they followed him out to the Mount of Olives and uh, basically the, the Roman soldiers caught wind of what was going on and they rushed in there and killed a bunch of people, arrested a bunch of people, and this guy escaped with his life. And so now it seems that Lysias here, the commander, thought that the guy had come back. And he mentions how he had led a, a you know, thousands of assassins. I've talked about zealots before, Jewish zealots. That's basically what they were, assassins. And then there was a, a particular branch called the Sicarii. They were dagger men, and uh, they were very proficient in walking through a crowd and stabbing a Roman soldier or somebody and kind of escaping undetected. And so it could be these assassins here that he's talking about. And I assume that Lysias thought that this Egyptian was in the crowd and that the crowd caught him. They saw him and pulled him out and that that's what the uproar was about. So that's what Lysias thinks is happening here. And so Paul's going to speak to him and tell him, no, this is not the case at all. And he's going to give his testimony to the Hebrew people. So he, he speaks in Greek to... Uh, to the, the soldiers there and, and kind of wins them over and then he turns to the people and he speaks their native language. Now this is obviously literal but I think there is a lesson for us to learn here and that is we have to know how to speak the language of the people. This is very important for Christians. It doesn't take long to get into the Jesus bubble and you're speaking a foreign language and people just don't even know what you're talking about and that's a struggle for me. I didn't realize just how much so and then in the pulpit, you know, I'm talking to a, a wide range of people, unbelievers, new believers, seasoned believers, and I have to be sure that my, my language is transcending all of that and that it's effectively communicating. And we as Christians need to be sensitive to that. You know, I, I worked at a courthouse for a short period of time uh, before we moved here. And so it was cool to be back in a place with a lot of unbelievers. And there is very different. So I was a pastor, and that actually gives you a lot of credibility. And so my, my boss wanted to, uh, wanted to make sure everyone knew I was a pastor so that when I came into the courthouse there, the police and all of them, I mean, they would be real uh, stern with you. And uh, so in order for me to kind of have favor with the people, she made a big deal that I was, I was a preacher. And so I, they started calling me that instantly. Hey there, preacher, how's it going? And I just didn't like that. And there was this one lady in particular that really was kind of hostile to Christianity, and she was really doing that. I said, if you keep doing that, I'm going to call you church lady. And because I was thinking, my, my grandma, right, she was not a believer, but she, uh, she was picking someone up from church one time, mega church, you know, thousands of people out there. And so there was police patrolling and having to direct traffic and... So she gets stopped by this police officer and has to go this way and then come back and the police officer keeps stopping her and she finally cussed at the, at the cop. And the, the cop said, way to go, church lady. And she was like, I ain't no church lady. And so that always stuck with me, right? And so that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, you're the church lady. And uh, it was kind of funny. It really stuck, stuck with it. And I said, you know, you guys keep calling me preacher. I'm going to pass a collection plate around. And so, um, you know, I would cut up with them. I would joke with them and, and tease them. And, you know, there was a, a guy that died that I worked with there. And I know that he really um, had a burden for his son. His son wasn't doing very well. And so when I went to the funeral, I met his son. And I approached him. And I'm sure he had all kinds of 
preconceived ideas about me just because of the nature of religion there in that little town. And I started to talk to him, and I could tell the walls were going up. And I said, look, man, don't let this tie fool you, all right? You know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, and I understand where you're at. And that really impacted him. I broke through that wall. I just spoke in plain language to him, and that, that really meant something to him. So we, we have to know how to do that when we're around people to speak the language of the people. We don't have to be offensive. We don't have to compromise. We don't have to be even sinful in, in the way that we talk. But there is a certain way that communicates effectively. So we're going to see Paul do that. So, verse 1 here, chapter 22, says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And he said, I indeed, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers, law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So based on the book of Acts up to this point, you would think that Paul's getting ready to step forth and fire home this dynamic sermon and that he would preach from the Old Testament line upon line. And we've seen that happen so many times with so many different people, but that's not what he does. Instead, he tells his story. Instead, Paul gives... His testimony. And can I tell you that there is great power in that. And we all have a story. And so um, there's, there's value in it. You know, people can't argue with that. And that's what it means to be a witness. When we talk about witnessing for Christ, it doesn't mean that you've got to convince people. It simply means to tell about what you saw, what you experienced, what has happened in your life. And that's sharing your story. So I would encourage you guys, do you know how to share your story? And can you do it quickly? Could you do it in a couple of minutes if you had to? Well, here Paul had one of the greatest opportunities of his whole ministry. And what did he do? He told his story. He gave his testimony. He began by identifying his past. That's important. We don't want to go too crazy with that. I remember the first time I... I gave my testimony and I spoke in public. It was my first time ever doing that. And I went on and on and on about my past. And by the time I got off the stage, I just felt dirty, man. I felt embarrassed even. And I thought, why did I do that? That was dumb. And I totally knew not to do that coming into it, but I did. And so, nonetheless, it is good to start with where we were, who we were. And Paul... Let them know, I was just like you guys. I was very much in this world. I loved the law, and I was raised in the strictness of our fathers under Gamaliel. And so he, he let them know that uh, he could relate to where they were, at, they were at. And he said, I even persecuted the church, you know. Um, Gamaliel here, this was kind of a big deal. For, for Paul to be trained by Gamaliel, the rabbi, says a lot. He was one of the most famous rabbis of that time, and he was actually the grandson of Hillel. And when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and they started asking him questions about marriage, when is it lawful to divorce, 
they were trying to trap Jesus up into a debate that had been going on between Shammai and Hillel many, many years earlier. And so this guy, Gamaliel, is actually the grandson of Hillel. He is a big, big deal. And so he's telling them, look, I was raised here. I'm a Jew. I was zealous. I was trained by Gamaliel. And I persecuted the church even to death. He would drag them into prison. They may be killed. Think about that for a second, guys. You ever seen a movie where, or even heard a story about someone who would uh, put a gun to someone's head or force them to blaspheme, force them to, to recant, to turn from their faith, to deny Christ or else? Paul did that. Can you believe that? And to think, I'm sure that that followed him for most of his life. And he talked about that. He said, you know, I was the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. Never really got away from that. But at the same time, Paul also said, you know what, I forget those things that are behind. And I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And that's what it's all about. We do, we, a lot of us have a very checkered past. We've come from a very terrible place. But like Paul... We can't let those things stop us from moving forward and pushing after the goal that we may reach the highest prize. Amen? And so we see that with Paul. So verse 6 here, Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things that are appointed for you to do. So God graciously intervened in Paul's life and ministry here. Um, Saul, excuse me, as his ministry at that time was persecuting the Christians. And he was actually opposing God vehemently, and he didn't even know it. And God, in His grace and mercy, stepped right in front of Saul that day and struck him to the ground and intervened in his life. And then Paul's question became not, who are you, not just who are you, but what do you want me to do? I mean, it didn't take much convincing then. You know, it was noonday, and we're told that. In that place, at noonday, the light from the sun is blistering, brilliant, bright. But the light of Christ outshone the sun so much so that Paul fell to the ground. And that was the glory of God. That was Christ. I think about when uh, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and His flesh, as it were, was kind of pulled back and then His glory shone forth and the disciples basically fell into a coma. And so here Christ Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus and His glory is shining forth. We're told that God dwells in unapproachable light. He is so perfectly holy and pure and majestic. And His glory would just melt your face off, you know. And so in God's grace He was just struck to the ground he had a revelation of God and he wanted to know, what do I do? And that's, that's the, the appropriate response. When I had a revelation of God and who he was, my question became, God, how can I serve you? I know you, Lord. I love you. I want to serve you. May my life be an offering to you and may my life be given to the service of the Most High. 
And so that was Saul's response, and that is the, the right response. So, verse 11, And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him, and then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So this was Paul's conversion and his commission. Ananias came to him, his sight was restored, and he was told what his mission would be. And that Paul had been chosen, that he was to know God's will and to do God's will. He was going to see the Lord and hear His voice. And that is amazing to me, that God would do something so kind as that, especially to an enemy. Because that's what Paul was, he was an adversary. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. He said, you're persecuting me. So I think about that. One of, the most, one of the most grand realities of the Christian faith is that if when we were enemies, God died for us, God redeemed us, God made us new, how much more is He for us now as beloved children? And Paul talks about that in Romans. Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 10, it's in your notes there. It says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And then 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God gave the very best thing that He had to give. I say that almost every single week. And I, it just, I can't stop saying that because our minds will never really grasp the weight of that. God gave the best thing that He had to give for enemies. We were dead in our trespass and sins. He sent His beautiful Son, His one and only begotten Son, to live a life that we couldn't live and to die the death that we truly deserved. So that if we put our trust in Him, we would be set free. We would no longer be under the condemnation of God's wrath. That we would never have to fear hell again because perfect love cast out all fear. And that's the good news. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't buy it. It's a gift. And it was the works of another. We can't work our way to heaven, but someone else worked our way to heaven for us. Jesus did that. And so if God was willing to extend a gift like that to His enemy, and now that Christ is in us and we are filled with the Holy Spirit and God looks upon us as precious sons and daughters, man, think about that. Think about the kindness of God that is poured out on us regularly, the love of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. Such a, a wonderful reality. And that is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And I saw him saying to me, 
Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprison and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So this is kind of new information here uh, about this encounter that Paul has with the Lord and the Lord tells him to to leave Jerusalem. And um, Paul says, well, he reminds God of his reputation. He says, God, don't you know? Hadn't you heard? Can't you remember? People know that I was hostile against Christians and that I used to beat them and imprison them, you know? Don't argue with God uh, because you're sure to lose. You will never win an argument with God. Now think about Moses. God called Moses and said, Go. Go to the Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free to let them go. And what did Moses say? He said, I can't talk. I don't, I'm not, I don't have good speech. You know? what, what am, and what was God's response to that? Who made your mouth? Who made your mouth? Okay, you can't, you can't argue with God, though we try. There are times when we know what we ought to do and we don't. And it's never a good thing. I can never think of a time that I regretted doing what God told me to do. Oftentimes, I wish I would have done it sooner. And so, it's understandable where Paul was coming from here. But the reality is, is that God's pa- uh, excuse me, Paul's past was not going to be a hindrance to him. It was going to catapult him forward into ministry. God's able to take... The broken things. He's able to take our mess-ups. He's able to take everything. The, my train wreck of a past life, redeem that and use it for His glory. And I have seen Him do that over and over and over. And God can do that. He truly is able to work all things together for good, for His purposes. Isn't that wonderful? And so don't ever think that you are so bad that God can't use you. Don't ever think that you were so good that God can't use you. Because sometimes I hear people say, that I had a boring testimony, you know. And it's like, golly, there's nothing more impressive to me than someone who came to Christ early in life and had a life of obedience and faithful service to the Lord. That is way more impressive because that is not normal at all. It's easy to be a knucklehead and go out and do everything that's wrong and then God comes along, smacks you upside the head and picks you up and says, all right, now get to work. But to, to bow the knee to the Lord at an early age and to serve Him faithfully, that is amazing. And every single conversion, that's, it's all a miracle. Okay? And so it's all about God and His grace and His saving power and very little to do with us and our little drama. Okay? And so, bad or good, God can use it and will use it. Now, verse 22 and they listened to him until this word. And when they, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And they said that he should be examined under scourging so that they might know why they shouted against him. So when Paul said Gentiles, it was over. He mentioned that God had sent him far away to the Gentiles. They flipped out again. They were ready to kill him all over again. You know, as infuriating as the truth is, we have to tell the truth. And Paul didn't hold back. Paul said the very thing that he knew would be so very offensive to them. I'm sure he was hoping 
that they would say, oh, man, that's amazing. But that wasn't what happened. They went off on him, and they were ready to kill him again. And this is comical to me. They're, like, ripping their clothes and throwing dust in the air. And I was like, I want to do that sometime. Like, next time I get some bad news and I'm out somewhere, I'm just going to tear my shirt and start throwing dust all in the air. It's probably a great way to just get it out, you know. Anyways, well, the commander was like, I know what we're going to do. We'll scourge this guy. We'll get the truth out of him. And that's exactly what that was. They would uh, whip him like that, like they did to Jesus. That was to get a confession. You're going to tell us what we want to know. We will get it out of you. So that's what they set out to do. Well, verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. So Paul stopped them dead in their tracks by telling them that he was a citizen. It was severely punishable. This was a severely punishable crime to bound, unlawfully bound and scourge a Roman citizen. And, you know, the commander was like, you know, I purchased my citizenship, and you could do that. But Paul said, I was born a citizen, so watch out, buddy. And so they, they backed off. They were legitimately scared, understandably so. And so this is kind of where our story ends today. But they're going to take Paul out. They're like, okay, that plan, no, plan B. And so they're going to take Paul back out before the Sanhedrin. And that's where we'll pick up next time. And Paul's going to deliver his second defense, second public defense. So in closing, just a few things here. God desires to make us into a vessel of honor. Praise God for that. Such a, a glorious reality, a glorious truth. And He is in the business of doing that here today. God has good works for us all to walk in. God has predetermined, planned works for us before the foundation of the earth even, that we would walk in these works. It doesn't mean that it will always be easy. It doesn't mean that people will always think highly of us. But as a chosen vessel of God, we have a powerful story that we can use for God's glory and for His purposes. No matter how bad or boring our past may be, God can use it all for His glory. Amen?